0: Hello, this is Rachel Zucker, and this is Commonplace: Conversations with Poets and Other People, Episode Twenty. I spoke with mind-body coach, poet, hypnotherapist, transpoetics practitioner, private workshop leader, mother, and activist Kristen Prevalet on November first, two thousand sixteen. I spoke with her right after she visited my graduate poetry workshop at NYU. I'd been doing process exercises in class and had invited Kristen to come in and talk about trans poetics and hypnotherapy. After class, we went upstairs, already a bit giddy and mind expanded, and recorded the conversation you're about to hear. I've followed Kristen's work and life since I came into contact with Kristen when she wrote a great essay on Anne Waldman for the book I co-edited with Arielle Greenberg called Women Poets on Mentorship, Efforts and Affection. Kristen's essay on Anne Waldman, as well as several sound files of Kristen reading from the unpublished novel we discuss, will be available for our patrons, and all patrons will be entered into our next raffle, which includes books by Kristen donated by Essay Press and a few copies of Anne Waldman's new book donated by Coffee House Press. And don't forget, All patrons who sign up in the month of February will get all of these patron bonuses, plus they'll get to choose from a list of several books donated by Copper Canyon Press. Many, many thanks to Copper Canyon, Essay Press, and Coffeehouse Press for supporting Commonplace. To find out how to become a patron of the podcast and for links to extra resources and materials, visit commonpodcast.com. Kristen Prevalet is the author of more than 10 books and chapbooks, including her poetry collection, I, Afterlife, which I adore and have taught several times. Kristen translates from French and won a translation award from Penn in 2004. She has taught and lectured in many places, including the New School, St. John's, and Naropa. We talk about where and how and what Kristen is teaching now and about her hypnotherapy practice. Over the years, I have found various excuses to have Kristen visit my graduate or undergraduate classes. I never have any idea what she will talk about or do. It's always strange, surprising, and amazing, and always something the class talks about for the rest of the semester. When my kids were little, there were picture books they wanted me to read and reread, and often these were the books that the kids didn't understand. The books where the pictures didn't match up with the text, the books that confused them or scared them a little were the ones they wanted to hear again. Being with Kristen in person and on the page is pleasurably perplexing. Her work is weird, her mind is beautiful and constantly surprising to me. Many of the things that Kristen has said in her writing, in my classes, or details about the nature of some of her projects have stuck with me for years. I'm fascinated by what Kristen has to say about performance, the performance of grief in particular, conceptual art, activism, translation, politics, Kristen calls herself Radical Femme in this episode, and I find myself wanting to put the word radical in front of all the adjectives I use for the things Kristen does radical writing, radical thinking, radical teaching. In spite of or because of these radicals, this episode has the feeling of a slumber party. It was dark and wintry outside. We were on the verge of the election, but not there yet, and hadn't spent time together for several years. There's some giggling and nervous laughter on my part, especially when Kristen, about an hour in, describes the conceptual piece of writing with an embedded pornographic novel that she wrote. It was so much fun talking with Kristen and also felt slightly dangerous. I half expected someone to knock on the door, tell us to turn out the lights, go to sleep, stop talking, definitely stop talking about kundalini energy, female sexuality, poetry, or whatever it is the stuff you girls are talking about. We do talk about girl stuff, radical, witchy, late night girl talk about how to live, write, mother, also sex, libido, teaching, prison, and grapefruit, and I will admit, It was even more exciting talking to Kristen, knowing that you would be listening. Okay, so first of all, you just visited my class, so this is kind of fun because I've never done a podcast conversation with someone who has been to my class in like the last 15 minutes. And um, maybe we could just start in the present moment and go to the past when we need to go to the past. Okay. So what was that like for you? The class was, (laughs) was,
1: I really enjoyed the class very much. I thought they were very open to the experience and very open to non-prescriptive prompt writing as one perhaps might normally find in a creative writing workshop mm-hmm. and um that that was really good I do definitely have students write and then share what they have written and my students are now used to it um and I I know that I, at the very beginning I have to go through a lot of awkward silence mm-hmm. and, and I think that There's a very productive awkwardness because it has to do with, wait a minute, I just wrote this, it's raw, and there's no way in hell I'm going to read this out loud. right Um, But then when they do, it turns out to be a conversation being kind of held through the words, even if they're fragments or one sentence here, one sentence there. And everybody just sits back and listens, and it just becomes part of a larger conversation.
0: Mm -hmm. So tell me um, what your teaching life is like right now. Like, how is it set up? Where are you teaching? When are you teaching? Who are you teaching? And how is that? Because it's changed over the years.
1: It has. Um, I am now teaching as part of Bard's Prison Initiative. Mm. Um, And so I'm teaching in a medium-security women's prison, and I'm teaching... A, a wonderful class actually called grammar for writers hmm. and it really is about i mean grammar to me isn't just about the rules it's about the structure of thought and the structure of language and you know how different rules get imposed and by who whom <laughs> um etc <cetera. laughs> and, <laughs> and so uh, I'm, I'm very much enjoying teaching that class and then i teach you know workshops on my own through my, uh, practice, the mind body coaching practice, where I'm basically bringing, you know, doing different workshops. The next one that I'm going to be teaching is on the narrative of past life regression. To me, past life regression isn't about the truth or whether or not past lives are or are not real. Um, I don't believe it's up to me to, uh, declare that in some way, but I am interested in the narrative of it and how the narrative elicits this very powerful internal state in most people who hear it. Hmm. And so we'll be spending a whole weekend um, playing around with those narratives. And I am then hopefully going to make a little book or something out of out of that. So Because I think it's an interesting take on it. Most people, when they teach something like that, teach it as a fact. Or as, you know, you will have this experience and all of these amazing things will happen and it's possible that amazing things will happen but i don't like to make any any promises i like to just say we're going to have these experiences and we're going to be curious about what happens and what happens in terms of your life when you're in the presence of this narrative hmm. whether it is or is not true
0: and and so uh do, uh what happens during the day? Do people? It's a it's a two day workshop. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And pe- mm-hmm. where do pe- do people sleep over? Yeah, they yeah. sleep
1: over. Yeah, I do it out of my house. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: That's awesome. How many people are usually in the? In uh, five the, or six. Have you taught this one before? The narrative of past life regression. I have. Wow.
1: Yeah, okay. I have taught this one before. And, you know, I do it because of the trans poetics and the poetics behind it. I do a lot of, we do a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. So it's not just um, the trances one after the other. It's also a lot of writing and reflective exercises and, you know, taking time to bring it all around and think about it. And, you know, yeah. so it, it's a, it's what I do. It's a, a, a blend of the, the therapeutic and the, and the poetic. Mm-hmm. So at the level of people looking for personal transformation, that's fine, or people looking for material for their work.
0: And who are the people who normally take this workshop with you? Are they artists? Are they seekers? Are they, uh, are they looking for therapy and healing? And
1: It's a really nice combination of all, all three of those things, mm-hmm. actually. Um, that's why I kind of really like teaching these workshops because it's very... Much. I mean, not about the, uh, it's not saying, oh, you must be a poet to, you know, in fact, really the workshops are geared, whatever writing comes out of the workshops are often, is often quite genreless. And then the person can then take that writing and transform it into whatever genre they want. It's really wonderful for writers to have that experience of not kind of being in control of whatever it is that happens that you know, if a poem happens, a poem happens. If a short story happens, a short story happens. But, um, but also for non-writers, I just think it's really, really useful for non-writers to be in the space of writers mm. and to be put and to be given the opportunity to be put through similar kinds of exercises that we would be used to in a creative writing workshop, but to have them experience that with other writers, but in a context where they're also looking for some larger sense of therapy. Hmm. And, um, I just think it's often very useful to forget about the fact that you need therapy hmm. and to actually have an experience and to see what happens and from that angle.
0: Is there something special about writing or about language that's helpful for non-writers to experience or would they have the same would 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 there be the same benefit if you had non-writers and you were doing um drawing and painting or or dance or or something else singing I don't know
1: well the nice thing about the writing is that I think that a lot of non-writers have very have traumatic wounds of writing mm-hmm. mostly from fourth grade where they had been writing as children maybe freely in a diary or having fun with the different exercises that kindergarten and first grade and second grade kind of came up with, where you're just writing whatever comes to the top of your head and getting all sorts of smiley faces, you know, and then suddenly fourth grade happens and it's boom, red ink, F. This is not structure. This is not how you write. This is the speech is different than writing all of that. And I'm not saying that none of that is true. It is true in in the academy. Speech is different than writing, no doubt about it. You have to learn academic structure. And I teach academic structure very well and enjoy teaching academic structure. And I write into academic structure all the time. But I think that for non-writers, non-people who didn't continue on that trajectory, all they think about is fourth grade. Mm. And so when they think about themselves as writers, they don't think about themselves as writers because that got drilled out of them, as did a lot of a lot of creativity. The problem with creativity getting drilled out of somebody is that if you lose creativity, you also lose the ability to creatively transform yourself within a given moment um, to think kind of on your feet and to get out of a situation or to, you know, utilize a kind of flexibility, a mental flexibility uh, is a very useful life skill for everybody, whether they are writers or not. So in the trans writing workshops, uh, I think what happens to non-writers is that they write and they like it and it feels good. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether it's a masterpiece or not a masterpiece. It's just about the experience of feeling, oh my gosh, language really does come through me. When I put pen to paper, it actually happens. Something happens. I didn't I don't have any recollection of having written that, but I wrote it, and it's a whole new world that kind of opens up at that level, which can be which can be useful
0: hmm. And then uh, uh, it's not just that they have less. Uh, anxiety and fear around writing, but that that's something about the their lives when even when they're not writing is changed and shifted and they have maybe I mean i'm I'm filling in some pieces here myself two of the the real strong benefits that I can see of, of having a writing practice, whether or not you are a writer and you care about writing as your product, one is about paying attention and the other is about uh, ha- increasing your uh, tolerance for ambiguity and doubt um or complexity however you want to think about it i mean i was, those are the two that come to mind immediately but what what would you say are some of the other benefits for these non-writers who are coming and 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 developing either a practice of writing a sustaining sustained practice of writing or just at least this experience of of uh feeling the language come through them
1: well, th- those are all beautiful um things. Absolutely. You know, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's a, it's a practice of, of negative capability. Mm. And when you're, when you're a writer and you're used to residing in that zone, you're looking at the world through a certain lens. That's also a lens of being very attuned to language and being offended deeply when you hear it being used in ways that are not ambiguous, or that are ambiguous in ways that create enormous amounts of of hatred and hmm. anxiety, um, just in other words, rhetoric, right? The power the power of rhetoric. So, and I'm not I, I certainly have never really thought about, to be honest with you, whether or not the non writers who come to my workshops leave as writers or leave hearing language differently. But I I do think that the workshops certainly could elicit that understanding of difficult language and understanding that, oh, maybe the language that I'm hearing on the news or the language that I'm hearing from political candidates or the language that I'm hearing from this person who's speaking to me about my job performance, maybe I'm hearing that language differently and that I can... Transform it, or I can understand it from Mm -hmm. a different perspective because I'm hearing it differently. And I think, you know, obviously, difference is incredibly important. Being able to differentiate between someone giving you a some sort of a barking command, and you questioning whether or not you even really want to hear that language. And there's so much of it out there that's offensive. Language is being so ill used you know we we poets are are very much tenders of the of the garden of 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 language and you know we take a lot take great care with it and we can have fights about who does it better or not better but the fact of the matter is we have fights about it because we care about it Mm -hmm. and most people don't really think about language in that way Um, and so to have a deepening sensitivity to language I believe definitely opens up a larger sensitivity to one's thoughts, one's way of being in the world, and and one's way of approaching, you know, just language in the world.
0: Right. My youngest son is in fourth grade right now. I, I think you're absolutely right that there is often a shift right around that age in the way that we are allowed to experience language and uh, or the way that we are taught to use language and that we're praised or criticized for for our use of language or handwriting or all these other kinds of things and also i think that that around that age um, we really become language machines that is the way that we primarily kind of understand experience I mean, there are people who don't do that, but, but for the most part, I think we have so many ways, movement and music and, and touch. And, and as we get older, we become so language oriented, which as a poet, I love language and it's a very important to me. But it's also, uh, as you were saying, when it's misused, it's really painful, offensive um, and, and consequential. Because it's the currency for so many of us. It's like our most basic currency. It's not touch, you know, anymore for most people, um, after you're a baby. Um and I was just thinking about that and thinking about um the power of it, which makes me feel good as a as a language user and maker, but the sadness of um the loss of kind of those other ways of being in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we go Beautiful. back for one second to add, because I, I skipped over and I really would love to know also about your, the grammar of, of writing um, workshop mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what it's like to work in the prisons.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Well... You know it's an, it's interesting because, of course, there are so many books written by people who teach in the prisons and articles, and i've I've, you know read some of those and skimmed those articles. And they're all about, oh, you know, it's such a such a transformative experience. It's so euphoric and and all of these things. And I just think it's really hard. Mm. It's really hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, mm. as far as teaching goes. Um, it's hard because. You walk in and you walk out. It's hard because I'm in a room full of women, the majority of whom are there for drugs of some sort, some kind of something that happened for because of a drug infraction, which is absurd. Mm. Many of these women are mothers, uh, have children, and they're all 30, you know, in their 30s. Nobody really seems to be. There's one woman in there who's probably 40s. Mm. But, um, and it's really, really hard, uh, you know, I mean, once you're in the classroom, it's an ordinary classroom, you're just there dealing with a classroom just the way that I would deal with any classroom. But, you know, the, the line that they say that when they, when you leave, they say, get home safe. Hmm. And I just think, ah, you too, hmm. you know, <laughs> you too. <laughs> <laughs> and then I leave there and I just think, there's no reason why I shouldn't be in that prison. I've made a lot of choices in my life. You know, I've done things that I just didn't get caught.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm really, you know, I'm in that prison thinking these women are not really different than me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I'm thinking, wow, could I could I do this? Could I, could I do this and go to school and deal with this incredibly oppressive system that the guards are under as well? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't demonize the guards because they are part of this system and they're all being, you know, abused by it. Um, so, you know, that's, those are my thoughts. It's, it's not like, oh, I'm transforming the lives of prisoners. <laughs> like, that's really not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, wow, you know, I, I could, I'm, I'm in a classroom in this situation and I get to leave. Mm-hmm. And what a miracle that is. That is a miracle. That is amazing. That there are are people who get to live on the outside. That's what it's called, living on the outside. Mm. And it's like, what a privilege it is to live on the outside. But it's really difficult to go inside and see people who are unable to live on the outside because of one moment. One single moment. That's it. One moment. I think about... Wow, there are so many moments in a i mean millions of moments some somebody calculated them, and it's like a trillion moments or whatever it is that you go through in a lifetime to think that one of those moments you could be held so accountable that suddenly you're in a prison locked up for fifteen years with this one moment going playing over and over and over and over again in your head. You know, I, I, you know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. And that said, I, I, it's the best thing I've ever, I mean, I love it. Obviously it's amazing. It's the women are amazing. They, I, I just am awed by the fact that they are doing what they are doing, which is going through this associate's degree in this incredibly oppressive place.
0: And how, so if the, if the goal is, at that point in, in their lives is not necessarily for the writing to transform them because the real transformation would just be for them to not be in the prison. Um, exactly. What is, what is, other than that, you know, th- that you're part of them getting this degree, what, what, is, what does it feel like is the real work um, and the real goal of, of, of uh, writing with them and teaching writing?
1: To help them pass the time.
0: Mm. Wow.
1: To open up time in a brand new way. That's what I mean. Look, I'm teaching as a part of an associate's degree. And obviously there are rubrics and things that need to be learned. And, you know, benchmarks that need to be made. And sentences that need to be grammatically correct. And rules that need to be learned. But my secret goal is just pass the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Books open up a passing of time. And you got a lot of it. So... This is a good practice. And I think that the regiment of grammar is wonderful for the passing of time. <laughs> you know, there's just something very trancy about sitting there doing grammar exercises. And I do believe that actually doing those exercises um, does some, you know, expands the brain the way that crossword puzzles do. I think that it kind of keeps all the neurons firing, you know, sort of keep, keeps, keeps the brain alive keeps it active.
0: You go, do you go once a week or more? Twice a week. Twice a week. And yeah. then do you work with the same students for a long period of time? No, they,
1: they really revolve us.
0: Huh. On purpose?
1: I think on purpose. Yeah. They, yeah, they want all of the teachers to have different experiences. All the students have different experiences with different teachers.
0: Hmm. Oh, I had, I had made an assumption that it was to, to reduce the attachment between, uh, the students and the teachers. It could be. I don't
1: really know philosophically what, the logic is uh-huh. it's
0: possible and so and then like how long would the course be that you're giving
1: oh it's a full semester okay just an ordinary semester just like at te- teaching at any university mm-hmm. and they're taking you know five other classes wow so okay. yeah and
0: then and then the and do they finish how many years do they do it the, it, is it i believe like a two it's year? a two-year yeah.
1: associate's degree
0: wow yeah Wow.
1: That then counts once they get out. This is medium security, which means they will get out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they have limited sentences, I believe. So um, I think. I mean, I don't I don't know anything about the backgrounds of any of them, but that's what I'm assuming, um, that then they can do something with that if they wanted to get college credit, I'm pretty sure.
0: I mean, it sounds like this experience has certainly changed your awareness of the privilege of living on the outside yeah um, of moments the privilege y- of moments mm-hmm. and has it I, I guess that's also my question like has it has it changed your perception or your awareness or your experience of of your own relationship to passing the time
1: oh uh, yeah absolutely yeah mm. I think time time becomes much more much more precious when you're free to move about it and sculpt it however you want
0: mm. as opposed to basically just like how can I fast forward Yeah, to a time when I don't have to be in here? Well, right. Right.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So teaching, so you're teaching these two classes in very, with very, very different kinds of environments um, and different kinds of goals. Um, but you're, this teaching is not all you do by any means. Um, so what else is going on in your life? Do you have a private practice right now or a like of, do you see people individually?
1: Oh, oh, I I do. I mm-hmm. have kind of figured out that what I am is a mind-body coach. Mm. And so I integrate hypnosis, energy healing and life coaching for people who are making behavioral changes in their life. And that practice is um up I do that up in up in Westchester, but I also do sessions over Skype for people who are in different states or countries or whatever and that practice is going really well and and it's wonderful it's a part-time practice I don't try to do it full-time and that's why I have the teaching so I kind of have the teaching coming in as that baseline sort of reliable income and then I don't have to worry so much about the practice because it has it there's cycles to it you know it's not as if it's busy all the time. There's definitely no doubt, but that October and November are very busy. But then December can be almost non-existent and then January can be um okay. February is rough. March starts to get better and then April, oh, feeling better. Let's make some changes May. Huh. Then, you know, August, forget about it, you know. July, so I cannot, and I'm not going to. You know, it's part of my practice. Obviously, it's what I'm teaching. Is this idea that you don't need to need to force control over things? So I'm not going to force control over the practice by trying to, you know, hustle or to get clients when uh, the the sort of circadian rhythms are in an ebb. You know, (laughs) so um, so it's wonderful though. I really love it. I love having it. Kind of be this presence in my life, and having these people come in and out of in and out of the practice and in and out of the teaching, the teachings the, of you know the way my certain way of doing it um, that seems to be very helpful to people. So I'm I'm very happy. I mm. feel very content mm. as a human being at the moment. Plus, I have a wonderful person, <laughs> formerly a daughter. <laughs> now a person who How has rejected is gender and I just think that's oh, wow. really
0: cool. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, what ha- that now it makes sense because before I said how's your daughter? Right. And and you. what did you say? You said, I said she's I now a person. Have a, no, I said I now have a person. You have now a person yeah. and I in- interpreted that to mean <laughs> interesting uh, assumption that I made there. She's... Uh, uh, my child is a certain age that she's she's like a person oh. rather than a child. <laughs> no. I didn't get the gender piece of it oh, at no. first.
1: She's a they them. Got it.
0: Yeah. How old are they?
1: Thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And doing really good at, as a thirteen year old. Mm-hmm. Very happy with this particular thirteen year old. And um, yeah, so all all is well. There's mm-hmm. a certain solidness. It's interesting to be gender fluid at the age of 13 Mm -hmm. and to be completely fine with that and to have no angst or concern about it. It's interesting how solid she is as a human being. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting because I think about, well, I think about a lot of people, but I really think about my mother who Mm. was very, was clearly a lesbian and really should not ever have gotten married Um, and certainly should never have had a daughter, (laughs) but you know the rigidity at which she was thought she had to conform and i just thought wow it's incredible when you can let go of gender mm. that you could just be a human being
0: you're saying your mother should not have have had a daughter or not have had a child no my mom my mother should not have had a daughter my mother
1: is not was would have been okay with a son mm. but my mother had a lot of yeah other kinds of issues but um yeah my my radical uh, femininity is all about r- rebelling against my mother.
0: <laughs> um, we went to the past, so we're yes, we're, we in the, we're in the we past. Totally in the yeah, past. Yeah. So, so I think that I first met you when I uh, asked you to write an essay for women poets on mentorship. That's right. Um, and uh, you wrote about Anne Waldman and your mother right and the image I remember so <laughs> well from that essay it's a great essay um is a is of your mother uh with a tool with tools up on the roof of the house like fixing fixing your house and um so it's so fascinating to be back at this moment with you talking about your mother that's um, right I forgot about that yeah um, so wait, can you say more about your radical femininity? And then we're going to go back to trance, but it's great. it's all it's all it's all connected. <laughs> radical femininity. yeah
1: well, interestingly enough, my radical femininity ha- is it, it wrote itself into a a new manuscript, which I'm really um, excited about. I'm excited about this manuscript. It's a weird one. Mm-hmm. and it's going to it's a fish out of water in a really big way. And we'll see who who dares to publish it. But uh, it's poems. No, um, no. It, it's it, essentially what it is is a pornographic novel, which is a footnote to a larger conceptual project that interrogates um, the writing of this novel on multiple levels.
0: Okay, <laughs> I'm <laughs> so glad I asked. But I mean, so w- what? What form does it take?
1: well it takes it takes the form it's prose primarily mm-hmm. in that sense but it's the actual novel appears in the middle as a kind of centerfold um but it's it, it's it's encased by poems mm. um so in other words it's almost like it's trying to disappear in some way because i you know for a variety of complex reasons but really the the uh, manuscript is about, it's called, Killing the False Woman Keeps the Live One from Breathing, which is a reversal of Helene Sue's great line, we must kill the false woman in order to keep the live one breathing, um, in order to allow the live one to breathe. And this whole idea of killing the false woman, I really decided to rebel against and I decided I'm not going to kill the false woman. And I, really, it really wasn't my decision. This is my whole thing, as I was saying to your class, that the book writes itself. Um, so this particular book was all about how, um, you know, my, my false woman really decided that she needed to express herself with a vengeance. And so she got into some trouble, and she also wrote a pornographic novel that is, caused an enormous amount of, of rifts in this, you know, the kind of space-time continuum, but then simultaneously became this book, which I actually feel really good about, even though I don't have any idea what to do with it.
0: Okay. <laughs> I, 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 nobody can see me, but my eyes are very wide and I'm like very excited and I'm like in this like, you know, a uh, muscle taut position, like I'm going to like pounce off and go somewhere or something, but, um, it's just, uh, this is so exciting. So, uh, in my class just now, you were talking about your various practices around writing, and and then you said, um, so then when someone asks you for a poem or an essay, you go back and you you know you've already written it. You know that you know it's there, and the process is really about finding it. But um, did how did you know to write this? Did someone Uh, How, how, I mean, how, how could, yeah, did someone ask you, could you please write a pornographic novel that's disappearing into a conceptual project? No. No.
1: (laughs) No, I would never have conceived of this in a million years. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Um, No, it, it was more, I mean, I suppose with the, with fiction, I, I will say that I think I departed from that process mm-hmm. that i had described in your class as being one of of retrograde meaning i write and then someone asks me you know i write in journals free writing letting things go being very you know just not even paying attention to what it is i'm writing and then i go back and find the poem or find the prose or find the book that's how i wrote i afterlife um but no th- this book definitely had a little bit of a of a different process which is that I but I did go into the state of automatic writing. I did mm. I did channel this manuscript. I did I mean, to be quite frank about it, I, I definitely I I went into a very intentional trance and just and just wrote. And then of course spent a long time, you know, editing and going all of that. But the actual process of writing was an automatic process, and in that sense, the novel wrote itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do separate myself from it. In fact, I the the way that I articulated it is um, that it's by my pseudonym, whose whose name coincidentally is Mina Lloyd. Hmm. And so I say that the uh, you know the t- book is. By Mina Lloyd, with a conceptual introduction by Kristen Prevolet. Um because I really don't feel that I wrote wrote the novel. Okay. So I mean, my you know I wrote it, but it's it's just it, I people who write novels must understand this. It must happen all the time that you write a novel and you're like, what? who wrote that novel? That's ridiculous. I I never ha- had these thoughts before or could. Could manifest these kinds of characters or these scenarios or how do I even know how to write into into narrative form? Mm-hmm. I never really talk. I never took any, you know, I've read novels, certainly. And I think that teaches you how to write into narrative form. But that's kind of a magical process in and of itself.
0: And is the pornographic novel part of this uh, kind of traditional in its form? It's like a yeah. A, wow. And um, so, how did you not write it in the sense? Uh, did you sit down with the intention of I'm now I'm going to go into a trance state and. Uh, the, the you know, I have the image or the idea or the concept of the fallen, uh, the false woman, excuse me. Fallen was an interesting slip. Very interesting right. slip. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so the false woman. Oh, no, the
1: false woman concept didn't come until way oh, okay. after the novel was written. Again, I wrote the novel and then I had to interrogate. So what this is really is a memoir of an unconscious character that emerges in writes and novel it's her it's like the memoir of how that even happened so it's it's a combination of a fiction conceptual poetry and memoir is what it is
0: okay and the part of it that's the novel part of it sounds like it had more will imposed on a lot it. of will right and so enormous amounts of and will so did you set aside a period of time oh yeah no I was obsessed with it yeah
1: I was absolutely obsessed with it I I would you know yeah like every I think every afternoon from like three to um five you know right before whatever it was before my kid got home or, or mm. whatever i don't remember how i did it or the morning i would sometimes do it mm. but it was really like i need to do this and i'm i don't care if i just have an hour and right. i handwrote the whole thing
0: wow it's all uh, handwritten uh, on purpose that that, well, that was part of the
1: that was how i was
0: it had to be that
1: way doing it yeah just through the automatic process uh-huh anyway it was interesting um, I, I think it's a vile and despicable novel but you know i'm shocked about it i'm shocked I'm really sh- quite shocked by it, but uh, friends of mine have read it and and said that it 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 it's definitely you know it crosses certain boundaries, but it's not shocking uh-huh. so I'm happy about that. That's just my own bourgeois kind of <laughs> my <laughs> internal grandmother coming forward
0: <laughs> um, are you was there pleasure in the writing of it? Or?
1: Enormous amount, yeah. Mm. No, my care, you know, Mina, Mina Lloyd, ha- Mina had a great time writing this novel. Mm. Mina had felt, you know, totally chained
0: up. You know, I had chained her up for my entire life. Had she written things before? Or is this her no. First, this is her first. Will it be her last? Um, I, I
1: think she and I have, you know, I, I in your class, you know, I talked about William James and the idea of the co-conscious mind. There's the unconscious mind, and then there's the co-conscious mind, which is a an agreement, and in you know, an and, um, an integration <laughs> of one's you know unconsciousness and one's consciousness coming together. Mm. Um, and I think I've arrived at that, which is which is a good thing. I, I'm really happy not to be Mina anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, but she's more integrated. You're, she's you're, integrated. Yeah,
1: yeah, she's integrated now, huh. which is much better for me, for us. <laughs>
0: Maybe you are becoming singular plural fluid. I think you're
1: right. No, absolutely. Yes. You I think I'm a they them.
0: Yeah. That is okay. Except
1: for my my gender fluidity is like cis fem and then uber cis fem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, wow. I don't know exactly how that works, but in that sense maybe I'm I'm actually a trans you know, I'm like a trans woman, mm. and and that's sort of what happened with Mina. She she really she it, it was it was like I was performing this kind of drag
2: mm.
1: of femininity.
2: Mm.
1: It was really strange for me. It, it was just an interesting excursion that I clearly had to go through, and you know. But
0: how long? Thank God
1: that? I have the book. That's all I have to say. We <laughs> are so lucky to be artists and writers because. <laughs> Some people go through you know, people go through these kinds of things all the time. This isn't some novel thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know this isn't this isn't something that only I've ever done. every but everyone goes through this at different times in their life where something comes forward and sort of takes over, and you have to work very hard to get it back. I mean, this is a very common experience, I think. I just You're happen to about- document it.
0: You're talking about the process of like transformation and integration, and and oh right. sure, and, uh, right. You, you know, then-
1: people acting out, or uh-huh. you know, we're, you know, getting involved in certain things, or getting addicted to certain things, or or you know, turning some th- certain things out that that are not really them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've all had the feeling of not acting like ourselves in the world, right and needing to get back to what's authentic or what's more authentic. you know, I don't necessarily believe in an authentic self. I do believe, however, in a self that is conscious of itself <laughs> and that that is a kind of evolution of self. I do believe that. Hmm. Um, but I think basically all I did was document that process, as, as many other writers, I believe, certainly have done before. Um, but tell, anyway.
0: tell me a little bit about the the process, or the the trans state that you um, went into f- to write this project, and and how you did it. <laughs> wow, <laughs> you really want to know? I really want to know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, when you said that, I, like, I thought about Alice Notley. She said that she, when she wrote uh, *Mysteries of Small Houses*, that she looked at a particular photograph of herself as a child um, and put herself into a, a trans state and then wrote the poems in that book. But um, I, I don't picture you doing that because that's not what this one was about.
1: No, this one. This one was, if, I, if, I'm to, if I'm to really name it for what it is, I will tell you that what happened was that Mina, when Mina decided to come for, when I decided to allow Mina to come forward and create an enormous storm, thankfully not a storm that in any way affected my child, by the mm-hmm. way. I was very strategic, mm-hmm. which is another benefit, I think, to being a writer. That you can be strategic about the storms that you create, and that what you're doing for the sake of art does not have to affect, you know, the the household, um, which I, you know, and I just let me digress because I think about Carl Jung and the Red Book, and I think about, you know, Lenore Carrington and Max Ernst going literally bonkers you know um in mexico you know doing all sorts of acid and all sort, whatever else that it was that they were doing and then making these beautiful paintings and frittages and just being in the world of their insanity and their beautiful insanity um and creating these gorgeous works of art i'm so jealous yeah of the ability to do that and I'll tell you that I do feel that this manuscript was my attempt to do that, but I couldn't really do that because I, you know, had, have this child. And There's no doubt about it. I wasn't going to leave the child behind and, mm-hmm. and go off into this. I wasn't going to leave myself behind, which is why I'm able to talk about this slightly tongue-in-cheekly, right? I mean, I didn't literally go off into madness the behaviors that I exhibited were not really all that bad. I'm not in prison, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it's an it's just interesting. I think to think about that.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and so what yeah. I will
1: say is that Mina unleashed an energy in me. It's an energy called Kundalini. It's an energy that is uh, very very powerful. The people who write and know and teach Kundalini, which I do not, by the way um talk about it really as being the most energy that a human body can take and it is a sexual energy it's a profound feeling of just intense intensity m- way beyond anxiety it's hmm. it's it is a it is a waking up of of something that really really feels like it could potentially overtake you which is why it's a very dangerous thing and needs to be channeled through classes like kundalini (laughs) Um, so when that energy came and I knew I had to manage it I mean I couldn't let it really take over so what I realized was I need to write a novel a novel will channel this energy Hmm. so the practice I suppose that is a kundalini practice to be honest with you I've never asked a kundalini expert about this but I think I think what I did was was a was a very almost tantric exercise in saying okay I as a physical human body cannot take this energy and I'm going to transform it I'm going to channel it into a novel and that novel is going to take the full brunt and horror of this energy hmm. um and so the trance was really tr- basically Letting it out of my body for the hour and a half that I was sitting there writing, it was incredibly relieving hmm. because being with it and trying to maintain the household was difficult. It was a very, very difficult, you know, emotionally, um, physically. It was very difficult that time. And I am so glad that it is done. And I have no desire to ever experience it again, except for perhaps with some sort of a guru. You know, I would I would happily, you know, be in a class or something and figure out. Oh, yes, there's the Kundalini energy, and it's a spiritual energy, and I can really do cool stuff with it at the level of the body and the mind and transfiguration of all of those energies, etc. But this novel, you know, this novel took took the took the brunt of brunt of it.
0: Was there an event that uh, caused the surge of kundalini energy in you?
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and that and that goes back to you know just a a larger, much more personal story that has to do with relationships that I was in, you know, sort of things that I needed to get out of and felt trapped by, um, you know, just things that I was going through physically that Mm -hmm. were that were that were really feeling quite. You know, enslaved in a in a certain way, like very constrained. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a need to break free, mm-hmm. and that's when it happened. So,
0: I'm really interested um, in so many parts of this. Uh, I'm thinking a lot about the way in which motherhood is this enormous constraint and also an organizing principle uh you know may if you if you had been able to you know go on some kind of self-destructive walkabout um you might not have written this book because you wouldn't have needed to write this book uh so i like that idea um, I think I've definitely been been playing a lot in my own work with the feeling I have that I am very well behaved in my regular life and that my poetry has to become a site and is becoming a site of greater and greater disobedience. Um, I'm also a little bit hesitant about that way of thinking uh, about about my relationship to my own work for two reasons one it sort of implies that a, a level of like repression uh and like you know pressure cooker feeling is necessary to create art and i and i and i like the idea that you could create art in this very kind of like playful peaceful non uh, you know, pressure cooker way, but that's not so much my experience. And the second problem I have with it is that I, I poetry uh, occupies an interesting space in terms of genre with, you know, if I'm using it as a site to misbehave or to push the boundaries of decency or decorum or... Uh, You know, being non loving, Um, you can still hurt someone with the poems. Um, Not not like leaving home uh, hurts people um, or acting really badly. Um, But I so I I I mean that was too much for me to say at once. But yeah, that's a lot. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a lot. Um. Well, what happened after I wrote the novel is I realized, oh my god what an enormous amount of energy was expended in that novel, and I still am feeling out of, you know, kind of out of my skin. Mm. I'm still feeling the energy. It did not actually succeed in exorcising this thing. Um, so th- hence comes the conceptual project,
2: mm.
1: which is that the novel is kind of a critique within a critique of Fifty Shades of Grey um, it's a unleashing of feminine sexuality, but it also is a critiquing of the ways in which feminine sexuality is under is sort of un, is understood by a larger capitalist uh, system. And so of course, because it's a fifty shades of gray piece, there are bankers who are in the piece. And so my conceptual project was because I thought to myself, I don't know any bankers, and I don't know if this is even an accurate portrayal of bankers, you know. (laughs) So my conceptual project was to find a banker to read my novel in exchange for a night of romance.
2: Wow.
1: And so I went on Craigslist. (laughs) (laughs) That's the conceptual project. And then that, and that's a Sophie Kahl-inspired, you know, idea um sophie call the great conceptual <laughs> french artist who did the most <laughs> incredibly outrageous things like that is not even outrageous compared to most of what sophie call did by the way um so uh you know i and so anyway i and again at, at some level you have to trust if the banker is going to emerge the banker is going to emerge And whatever banker emerges will be the right banker, because I made him. I'm actually conjuring him up out of my novel to appear in real life. And that's a kind of really witchy thing to do, to be honest with you. And so, you know, doing that, the banker who happened to appear genuinely was the right banker. It was really, really a really oddly compelling synergy, that I promise you would never happened in ordinary life. If I had left everything up to just, you know, fate or whatever, there would be no way that the two of us would have come together the way that we did.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: No way. Um, And so the conceptual project is that. Mm -hmm. And then that needs to be interrogated throughout the entire book as a, how did this happen? So that becomes what the book you know there's a love story in other words embedded in the book mm-hmm. as well as there being a larger political critique a social critique a critique of violence a critique of sexuality a critique of you know of of, of of that kundalini energy when it's turned dark
0: what's the difference between kundalini energy and libido
1: well, I mean, I think that the, the, the kundalini is, it's just like we were talking about in the class, you know, the libido is you're focusing on, on sexuality. The kundalini is, you've got your eye on the dot, but you're paying attention to the larger field around it. I mean, libido is not just about sex. Libido is actually an, an energy feeling in the body that has a very very high frequency and that has much larger implications that go way beyond having sex and often having sex doesn't satisfy it mm-hmm. right so it's so it's just that idea of of it's just i believe it's a larger understanding of of that energy that certainly can come through freud's idea of the of the libido i think when freud is writing about the libido he's probably writing about kundalini but again, I'm not really an expert on kundalini, although maybe I am. I don't know. Again, I have to. I, now I'm thinking I should probably ask someone if I'm even using the term correctly in terms of what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it was, you know, Ricky DuCornet talks about eros as being the generative, the, the moment of, of creativity. Um, and eros and, you know, libido and kundalini, I think, are all related. And it, they are also related to, to the work of art you know to the work of creating beauty creating something in the world and i certainly created something mm-hmm. you know i made yeah. the, i made i created this man um and it caused a, a pretty big time shift continuum issue on m- multiple fronts because our worlds were not worlds that were supposed to have come together you know and then everything that transpired after that wasn't supposed to have happened so then it became this <laughs> really crazy thing where like I created a fiction, I made the fiction come alive, and then I really
0: had to put the fiction back in the book. Hmm. What happened to the banker? It's, (laughs) 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 I'm
1: scaring you. No, I, I, I have no idea what happened to the banker. He literally disappeared. Okay. It's a, it's a longer story.
0: Okay so much I, longer Now story. I feel like I, you know, we're 40-something year old women and I've like I, I can I've just I I can't control myself with these questions and the question I, of course I want to ask you is what are you working on now? <laughs> oh my god. I'm literally uh, Well, I'm working on my book on pain management. Mhm.
1: Which is prose.
0: Yeah. And is non-fiction yeah 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 it's like it, it, which is part of the, right. the hypnotherapy practice right I mean, it's yeah. a, it's a kind of um it's more actually it's a book on healing a book on healing yeah. written from by a poet yeah and but f- but for uh self-help yeah yeah it's a yeah. it's a self-care book absolutely yeah. wow okay so so <laughs>
1: yeah. you and I'm really you know, I'm I'm sending this manuscript out very delicately, mm-hmm. you know, to certain publishers, and you know, it's an in- interesting reception. Um, but you know, I I think that the right one will come along. I just am not sure yet who who that is going to be. And I think it will take a certain boldness to publish this book. I, I think it's a book that really hasn't been written before yeah. in exactly this way. I'm not sure it's teachable. I don't know that you can bring in a. a a book that has a pornographic novel embedded in the footnote. Um
0: <laughs> well so- someone teaches but, I Love Dick, right, by Chris Kraus. That's which, true. Which is which is this seems like a more complex and multi-layered and um more mature in a way uh I don't mean more mature to, as in saying like I Love Dick is a uh immature I just uh, Well, it's, it's, it's a different, it's a different point in the life cycle and it's a different, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, no, because it really is a reflection on the thing itself and it's an interrogation of it. Right. And it's really saying it might not be okay that this thing exists in the world. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, the book on holistic healing is the opposite of, of this. It's, um, you know, uh. Um, a book i 'm very much looking forward to and i 'm self publishing that that 's an indie publication because um, in the self help world it's it, it doesn 't really matter who the publisher is you know in in poetry it matters who the poetry you know you don 't want to self publish a poem poems necessarily right. not that there 's a problem doing that at all but mm-hmm. this book i would you know the Mina loy book she doesn 't want that book to be self published um. <laughs> But the but the healing book I'm happy to self-publish and I think that people will find it useful.
0: Were you working on both of them at the same time? At well, all? the
1: healing book actually um I had written already and it I had I had published two books in in 2011, Visualize Comfort and uh You Resourceful. And basically what I did was I blended those two books together and rewrote parts of it into this new book. Mm-hmm. Which is now called visualized comfort holistic or visualized comfort healing and the unconscious mind. Um, so it's it's a it was a synthesis, definitely not being worked on while this whole ordeal was occurring. <laughs> no, that, that, I don't know how I would have done that. That would have been superpower. <laughs> well, how did
0: you even manage? Like, okay, the, as you're calling it, the ordeal. The ordeal, uh, or the, yes. the writing of the. Does this book have a title? that – the the novel and yes it's y- called
1: Killing the False Woman oh right sorry Keeps the Live One from Breathing by Mina K. Lloyd with a conceptual <laughs> introduction by Kristen Prevelet
0: okay <laughs> I don't want to shorten the title to killing, but if I try to say the whole thing, I'm going to get it wrong. But this book... Um, you was, call it The False Woman. The False Woman. Okay. I think that's what the publisher will probably make
1: <laughs> me do. Whoever the the publisher is, I think they will say,
0: I think you need to call this book The False Woman. <laughs> okay. So you're writing The False Woman and then you're going to the prison and then you're going... Oh, no, 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 no. The no. prison
1: is only happening now. The False Woman happened in, in 2014, 2015. Okay prison is 2016. So
0: what else were you doing when you were writing that book and how did you manage going from one Exactly. S- state of of being to another like because how did like when when your child came home self-hypnosis. from school
1: self hypnosis. Self okay, hypnosis. I'm able to get out of one state and put myself into another very quickly. How? Oh, baby because you learn how to do it. Self-hypno... You know, it's a, you have to come to my to the workshops.
0: Okay. So let's just... just I, I'm just trying to picture this, okay? So you're...
1: Tapping, you know, grabbing your wrist, taking a deep breath in, visualizing. Yeah. You know, and then being very present with the person who's in front of you. So really hyper-focusing on, you know, on, on whoever it is that you're actually in front of.
0: So if you're... So when you were in this, like, you know, uh, deep intense kundalini energy state channeling it into the false woman and then uh your child came home from school or right. the phone rang and you had to pick it up. Right. You you were able to just go into the mom. I hope
2: so. Yeah. I mean,
0: you know, I, I mean this
1: is me now in you know <laughs> analyzing myself in retrospect. I mean I'm not gonna say that I'm like a perfect person, you know, twenty twenty four hours a day. Um, or that I don't ha- occasionally have bad moods that then I, that I then displace onto my kid or that I behave perfectly in every single moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, there's absolutely no way that, that that would happen. But I do, I guess all I was meaning to say was that I think in taking on that energy, I could have gone crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't. Which doesn't mean that my kid doesn't think I'm weird and doesn't think that, like, <laughs> I'm really embarrassing and, you know, I, I dress funny most of the time and I say inappropriate things and, you know, but I think it does mean, though, that my kid's okay and right. I didn't go insane. Right. My kid did not witness their mother going insane. Yeah. Which could have happened. Yeah but I, I you know i'm scared to publish this book there's a part of me that keeps on hoping that i keep on getting rejected because you know i think i could get it you know i mean the, the donald trump contingent would not you know could could you know kind of freak out about the fact that that i you know tried to do all of these things
0: simultaneously when did you yeah we're going to talk about that in a second when, when did you <laughs> oh, great <laughs> When did you leave academia? 2010. 2010. And I mean, am I right in assuming you would never try to get this book published if you were still teaching at a university
1: or Well, see, that becomes another interesting question. Yeah. That becomes a super interesting question. I mean, I am teaching. Yeah. I'm teaching I'm teaching for Bard. I'm teaching, you know, I teach for Westchester Community College occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I am interested in having a teaching practice. Like I said, as the backbone to my, you know, hypnotherapy practice, I think the two of them all, you know, go very well together. And I don't know the extent to the, at which this book would inhi- would would hinder that. I have no idea. I would have to show it to you, Rachel, God, Kristen, and you can tell me.
0: I just can I just say
1: <laughs> I would love to share it with I you. I would
0: love to read it. I mean, I'm just right now I'm just I'm I'm having this moment where I just uh okay. I don't I we might have to edit this part out but you know i'm just thinking about the ways in which like ariel is writing all of this amazing work ariel greenberg about um sex and libido and and um non-monogamy and i think it is going to be very provocative to people um you know and she's already published um, some of it which is fantastic and she's she's the editor of this monthly column in the rumpus about uh, with where writers who have um, fetishes talk about the relationship of their fetish to their writing practice um, not necessarily writing about the fetish or writing about their you know non-normative um, sexual practices but the way in which those processes are informing their their, their creative work, and you know, I think it's very uh, provocative to people to think of someone like her uh, writing this work, living this life, and then you know, picking her kids up and feeding them like an organic snack. Um, she's an amazing mother, um, and I'm thinking about the 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 pressure or the the potential danger of that situation versus all of the writers we know i'm i'm thinking of men but i'm there are women too um who write very traditional work um and uh then like sleep with their students um you know or or act out in 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 ways that are really problematic and um Mm -hmm. but that but I, I you know I'm not saying there's no consequences for that but it seems to me that the consequences for that um seem different somehow uh to the to consequences for writing uh dangerous work while living mm-hmm. a, a a pretty uh yeah no suburban yeah. life yeah yeah
1: mm-hmm. especially for for women yeah yeah oh yeah Oh, absolutely. No, I think about that a lot. Um I mean, actually, a big part of that book is about is about women expressing their sexuality. And um there's a after a conceptual performance that I did in Philly, there's a q and A with the audience that I transcribed that's actually in the book as well. And one part of it is all about, you know, there are these blogs where women are writing very openly about their sexuality, and the comments are, unbelievably like threatening like you need to die whore you know kind of kind of comments and that's because in pretty much every culture I don't know maybe not in certain parts of Europe or maybe part I don't know Scandinavia or something I don't know I'm assuming there maybe our cultures where there's there's a kind of um, integration of this but really in in this in You know, you you cannot express female sexuality. So this culture will, if you express your sexuality, transform you into a goddess, fuck you, and then kill you for it. That's the cultural paradigm. That's what every movie is about. You know, not to generalize, but, you know, most movies about that really, really reveal female sexuality, the woman ends up dead or in some kind of major trouble. And or, you know, Law and Order. How many? All the dead women on Law and Order. One dead woman after another. All these shows on, on Netflix. Actually, Law and Order is an old reference. Just look at Netflix. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean it's Luther. I mean, all of these shows—they're horrific, 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 horrific horror horror shows. And they—they're depicting killers of women who have expressed in some way their sexuality, whether it be that they just happen to look pretty, or that's the narrative. Mm-hmm. That's the narrative. Become a goddess. You know, open yourself up to becoming, you know, this fluid sexual being, unleashing your powers, which is a power. It's an amazing power for women to take on. Female sexuality is incredible. It's incredibly strong and incredibly beautiful and incredibly non-threatening. Non-threaten- and women actually absolutely know how to manage it and manage a kid and a household and take care of things and fix the roof (laughs) (laughs) and teach a class Mm -hmm. and have clients. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I think men, I don't know, are they not, maybe they're not capable of multitasking in that way. So, But they really, it really is a cultural problem of needing to silence and shut down Mm -hmm. and kill uh, women who express themselves.
0: And so... Through
1: the kundalini,
0: are you saying that in some way, all of the this desire to uh, contain and compartmentalize and keep the universities uh, free of uh, female sexual s- sexual energy, or 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 even any sexual energy, that the male uh, kind of, or the patriarchal, I think is a, is a better way of saying it than the male. But that we've have, you know, we have so uh, invested, our culture is so invested in separating mind and body, in separating sex and work, or sex and uh, spirit, or mm-hmm. or uh, you know, uh, good behavior, um, that it's too threatening to allow for these, you know, this impurity to seep seep all over the place. I mean, you know, I just had a student in my office before class talking to me about, she wants to write about uh, animal sacrifice and also about blood um, from, she, she um, uh, grew up uh, religious Jewish and... Um, these are really fascinating topics like and 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 she was talking about uh the way on the one hand these codes of purity are are aimed very strongly at controlling women at the same time there is as you're saying and i'm saying this enormous power in it like why why would you need to control it so much if it wasn't powerful um well and they don't need to control it it would make them more powerful Mm. It actually would make would make men
1: more powerful if they if they allowed women to express their full sexuality and didn't demonize it in into pornography.
0: And so what's the fear? I mean, is it is it that is it that men can't tell if their babies are their babies because they didn't come out of their bodies? I, guess, I don't know. You mean the ancient primal Yeah. The and they don't want to expend fear? Fear? They don't want to expend, you know, resources on someone else's child, so that so they're trying to control fertility and sexuality, Could or is be. it? Or is I it, mean, I suppose
1: that's what the theory would be, right? I or is I it mean, like? I the, hadn't really thought about it at that the, level
0: of the primal. Is it? A, is it a kind of like latent uh, anger at the mother, at women for having for having once been so vulnerable, and at you know the great mothers, uh, you, you know, when, you know, any mother could kill an infant in two seconds. And so to know that you had that in your past is so terrifying that you then have to grow up and, you know, I don't know, grab everyone's pussy. I wish I knew. Oh my God. I wish I do.
1: I really wish I knew. I just know that, you know, um, I don't think it's healthy to suppress women's sexuality. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's healthy for mothers to not allow their kids to express their sexuality when when that is appropriate for for them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think it's a good idea to to hinder you know hinder oneself I mean to bring to express oneself in that way. Mm-hmm. To think about sexuality as oh, I can't express that because I'm going to be punished, or or I can't express that because well, I, I just would never do whatever those. You know, it's not useful to either women or men. I just know, you know, I just everyone knows that who knows who follows these practices, who understands these practices. It's just, it's it's an incredibly self-sabotaging and self-destructive. Impulse that is replicated over and over and over again in the culture. Replicated. Just ad nauseum. So I don't know. I don't think, and I don't think that this book is necessarily going to, obviously isn't going to change that. But I do think that uh, what I hope is that the structure of it, because it's so intellectual and so conceptual and so multilayered layered that the novel is so protected within that conceptual layer that it would be impossible to fault me for it.
0: Because it's so clear that you didn't just write a pornographic novel. Uh-huh. Huh.
1: Huh. Mm Mm-hmm. It's so clear that I put an enormous amount of work into attempting to Really, really, really take the time to figure out how this thing happened.
0: So, is the next level of freedom to just write the pornographic novel or the equivalent without and then the published a pseudonym?
1: That's what most women do. Uh huh. I mean, most most romance novels or you know erotica are written by women. Mm-hmm. They're all published under pseudonyms on Kindle. <laughs> that was my initial impre- thing to do. I'm going to publish it on Kindle and I'm going to make some money. Right. Um, but then I realized that this novel was not going to make any money because the
0: bankers all die at the end. Oh that's a, that's a rule. You can't kill off the bankers well, and make I mean, money. Well, I I
1: I suppose you can, but I just think it's it's just this this crazy novel that mixes up all of these it's like a little bit pulp, it's a little bit Dostoevsky, it's a little bit, you know, it's just it's completely mad. The whole thing. It's very mainstream. It's formulaic. It's formulaic yeah. fiction. But, you know, the, the wives get involved. You know, I mean, it's just it's just a mess. Oh, my
0: God. You, you have to publish <laughs> this. Or at least send it to me. I'm going to send it to you. <laughs> I'm excited to send it to you. Okay. <laughs> I
1: would be honored to send it to you. Um,
0: what's going to come next? Do you have any idea? Oh.
1: As far as writing goes? Yeah. Um, I'm, I don't know. Mm. Hopefully, publishing will happen. I haven't had a book really published since two thousand seven, mm-hmm. so I think it's I think it's time. I'm yeah. ready for another book, so I'm gonna just try and do what I need to do to make that
0: happen. What What gives you energy and sustains you? Um, I you know I guess probably
1: I think what gives me energy. I can say this now because of times in my life when I did not have this energy mm-hmm. that what gives me energy now is the is the great diversity of my life because every day is a little bit different mm-hmm. and there's so many balls in the air all of the balls that are in the air give me energy um <laughs> Because I just really am curious about which one is going to actually, you know, do something as opposed to just spin around in the air. (laughs) So I kind of keep on kind of pushing the pedal um, and just being curious when it's all, when something's going to happen. I have no idea. You know, I like that energy Mm -hmm. um, because it's it's very, it just makes it interesting because I don't know what's going to happen next
0: when I this is a story from my childhood that I don't know if it's true because it's before my my memory access but I did kindergarten twice and the the thing I always heard about this was that I had trouble with transitions so like you know it would be painting time and I would get into painting and I would want to paint all (laughs) day like a all day but then you can't in kindergarten do that they say now you have to do something else and now it's snack you have to clean up and put the and i i just that was like torture to me um i the second year of kindergarten didn't seem to i mean i i guess i just got older but it didn't actually solve the problem and i still experience that as as quite painful um to have to go from one thing to another or this idea of 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 juggling and and i don't i don't meet that experience or i don't experience the juggling with curiosity i wish i did i i feel pulled apart and i feel overwhelmed and i feel Mm uh you know i'd like to to rewrite this uh, script, um, and I, I just, uh, yeah, I think I, I think I'm not asking you for a shortcut really, but I, I I'm like, oh God, maybe this is the answer. <laughs> like if I could just um, get better at moving from one state to another, mm-hmm. and exactly. and not be um, so. Uh, uh, attached to uh, or or freaked out by mm-hmm. what is constantly happening in a normal life of having to go from one thing to another, going from work to being a mom to uh, being a teacher to all of these things. Um, wow, that would be so great.
1: Right. Well, you just have to keep in mind, you know, th- the problem isn't all the birds up in the sky problem is that they're not flying in formation just make them fly in formation you can have a lot of birds in the sky you just want them in the v then you follow them and they lead you places
0: <laughs> something so Or the butterflies no not a problem you said with birds in but- the sky and i immediately pictured someone shooting them down and trying to catch all the dead birds coming down from the sky Okay, I got, the, the birds Good are alive Lord. again. I know, okay. I know. Okay, the birds are alive again. They're flying, and the, 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 the problem is that not that someone's shooting them, but that they're not in formation. You don't
1: shoot the birds, <laughs> Rachel. It's not going to help you, I promise. <laughs> or
0: how about if you think
1: about the, the butterflies?
0: Butterflies, okay.
1: The butter, the problem with the butterflies isn't the, the fact that there are a lot of butterflies all flittering about. Yeah. It's just make them make them fly in formation.
2: Because
1: mm. that's what they'll do naturally. Mm-hmm. When they're all together, they will form, they will create a formation. So you just have to be a part of that.
0: Now, in class, when I asked you, you know, how did you come to this kind of wisdom? <laughs> <laughs> by You basically said necessity. I, uh-huh. I, I had no choice. Um,
1: well, yeah, no, I had no choice because at that time in 2010, I had a dead-end job.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I had, um, I was on anti-anxiety medication because I was miserable all the time. I had migraine headaches nonstop. I had to figure out a way to get, how to get out of my job, but I was totally paralyzed by the fact that I had to have a job because of the kid and because my, you know, just all these responsibilities and this and that. The paralysis around, around that time was literally just a, was um you know it just it all I can say is that it it, it just all coalesced hmm. into um into a something where I realized I I needed you know to get out of this place
0: was there anyone or anything that helped you did you have a guide in this or well, was- in a
1: certain way in a certain way, I will tell you, and I, this is really the power of language right here. <laughs> I was sitting with a with a friend of mine, um, a very wise woman, by the way, a very wise woman. And she, and I was going on about how much I hated my job and she said, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Oh, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. And then I would go on, oh, I hate this is, da, 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 and then this is happening. Blah, blah. Well, why don't you do this? Why don't, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. And she She interrupted me and she said, Wow, you're really all about the blocks, aren't you? Hmm. (laughs) And I looked at her like, How dare you? (laughs) My life is terrible. How dare you? And then I realized, Oh, the blocks. What? What? if there weren't any blocks? What if there's no blocks? What if I'm just making all this up? So then I did, um, from that point, um, seek out the hypnotherapy. Mm -hmm. Because that's really the route, you know, really as far as medications go, you know, people who are really sick of it and the blocks are just like, boom, 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 one after the other. It's like a a video game, right? Mm. (laughs) video game where you're walking down the path and cut off here, cut off there, cut off there. Once you're in that video game, you know, alternative... Medicine is really your only choice, I think.
0: So you, so you initially sought out hypnotherapy for the migraines and the anxiety for that whole situation of just like I'm of
1: all of these blocks that were just you know it makes you know migraines make a lot of sense when you're living that way.
0: Uh huh.
1: Um, they're very logical. Again, the unconscious mind trying to protect you, not trying to not trying to you know bring you bring you pain.
0: Right.
1: So, um, yeah, that's when I sought out the hypnotherapy, and then I was like, okay this makes sense to me in a really profound way. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to get my certification mm-hmm. and I'm going to, and then once I got the certification, my future opened up because I was like, oh, I can do something. I actually have a skill aside from teaching right? Um, that I can, that I can do. And I did, I let go of teaching for a good three years. Mm-hmm. Um, that was very difficult to do. Um, and then Difficult financially, um, oh or, yeah, difficult, or, in, in, yeah, difficult in difficult financially in difficult in every of way. Sense of identity. Oh my God, yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh. like I said, it's only it's only now it's only now that's this is seven years later that I feel on solid, solid ground. And even my ground right now is really not solid compared to someone with a full time job.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, your financial ground might not be solid, but you, you seem really solid and, and you use the word content, if I recall. <laughs> I know. To I know, describe because the butterflies are flying in formation. <laughs> yeah.
1: Whether or not, you know, the, the the foundation is actually solid, but, you know, sometimes you've got to not pay attention to the foundation being solid and trust that it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when you step on a pile of shit, you got to trust that the sidewalk's underneath. You're not going to like Disappear into it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and that and, I stole, by the way, <laughs> from who? I like that metaphor <laughs> from a from a self help guru. Nice.
0: And and what what feeds you right now in terms of are you do you are you reading uh, poetry and novels and you know or is it more from nature or from uh, what's, what's going in, I guess? I mean, because we talked about what's kind of coming out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um,
1: you know, it's funny. I have not been reading as much partially. Well, I've been doing a lot of – the teaching is being really, really useful in that way because I am obviously reading – um, reading for the teaching. I'm reading the Scarlet Letter and I'm reading King Lear mm. and I'm reading Vindication on the Rights of Women. I mean, all sorts of things I would never in a million years be reading right mm. now if I wasn't teaching this class. <laughs> um, but really aside from that, it's a sense of routine, you know, a sense of, I, I get up very early. I get up at five thirty, mm. and I just sit and for a half an hour and, you know, and drink, um, drink warm water mm-hmm. to sort of get my system set off right and i you know i just think i look forward to that every morning you know and i i just i don't know how to explain it but really i think that's all that that really and then the day kind of just goes from there people are calling i have to call them back you know the the routine
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know the routine is enormously Enormously important.
0: Do you work during that uh, beginning time or do you meditate or do you just...
1: No, I literally just sit there and uh-huh. drink my water. Uh-huh. I don't do anything. And and then, for and for then like then an hour? No, for... Well, for like a half an hour, uh-huh. you know, like 5.30 to 6. Uh-huh. Just stare, do nothing, stare yeah. into space. It's terribly unproductive use of time, but it makes me happy. Yeah. It really does.
0: I don't know why. And then you... you get your child all ready for school? Well, my kid or? at
1: this point gets gets themself ready. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you make breakfast mm-hmm. and, you know, make the lunch. The breakfast, of course, has to be eaten on the way out the door, mm-hmm. you know, never, never in a civilized fashion. Uh-huh. I did do one wonderful thing this morning, which is that I uh, broiled a grapefruit. Wow. And you put, uh, you basically take the grapefruit and you um, open it with the, you know, knife. And then you put, um, cinnamon and sugar on it, a little bit of sugar and you broil it and it becomes this kind of goopy, divine grapefruitness. Wow. I was very excited about this. Nice. Yes. So I'll do things like that Uh every once in a while, (laughs) but that's also because I
0: didn't have to teach. Uh
2: huh.
1: Yeah. So just the routine, I think the, not sure what's you know and well but writing
0: we're loopy now because we've we've been together for hours a lot of ground we did cover a lot of ground now whether anybody is going to follow all of that ground is another them
2: but i would say stick with it (laughs) i mean
0: we started in prison This has been Commonplace, conversations with poets and other people. Music by Moses Zucker Gorin. Design work by Eitan Darwish. Commonplace producers are Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, and Zach Tackett. And our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. We've got some amazing episodes coming up, including February 27th, our event at the KGB bar in New York with Morgan Parker, which we will record in front of a live audience. Please go to commonpodcast.com for more information. Take care and thanks so much for listening.